0: We'll mm-hmm. welcome everyone to episode 162 of some like it scott i'm your host scott shelton and on this week's episode we're talking about the latest from director denny villeneuve and his attempt to adapt the epic sci-fi space opera dune before we get to that though with me today as always i have my co-host scott harvey and along for the ride we have our good friend and huge fan of the dune novels brandon Ball- brandon welcome to the podcast how are you doing
1: Doing pretty well. Um, I really appreciate the invite for this, and I'm I've been very excited to talk about, um, you know, about this movie. Um, as yeah, I'm a, a big fan of the books and I'm pretty pretty passionate about them, and obviously, that makes me very passionate about this movie. And we'll get into what that passion is. You know, we'll we'll get into the specifics in a little bit. Yeah, of course.
0: I mean, like I I know that Scott and I have been talking for like a really long time about. Well, one, just this movie and it coming out as such a huge fan of Denny Villeneuve that I know I am and Scott, I think, has become over time as well as I've gotten him to to resample some of some of Denny's work. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the fact that we've both separately talked to you about Dune in general, but also this film it was kind of a no brainer, I think, to to ask you to come on and give your thoughts. But since we also do have another person on this podcast who hasn't talked yet, Scott, how are you doing today?
2: hey oh it's just me the guy who's always here um yeah, yeah. no um, i'm happy to be here happy to have brandon welcoming welcoming him on even though it means i'm gonna f- probably feel even more alienated during this review because <laughs> i now have like two lore heads uh when it oh, comes yeah. to dune but i i think that'll make it a more interesting conversation because you'll get you got your guys's perspective as like the dune stands and then you'll have me as like a complete dune virgin like I barely knew anything about like I recognize the names Arrakis and like Paul Atreides and all that from like as like being associated with Dune. But like Oh yes, I've heard there is a Duke.
0: Who is this Duke I hear of? I (laughs) haven't read
2: the book, haven't seen the Lynch film, haven't seen the miniseries, so um, Honestly,
0: it'd been funnier if you'd seen the miniseries, and that was the only thing that. you'd And
2: see. nothing else. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> was that Susan Sarandon? I think is in the miniseries or something. I've heard
0: it's just god awful. Um,
2: so yeah, haven't haven't dipped my toe in that yet. But so this is my first exposure to Dune, as it will be for a lot of people yeah. who have already seen it and who will continue to see it. Um, So I think, like I said, it'll be interesting to get all the perspectives here.
0: It's like the countdown series, but you're the person who. Who doesn't know what's Not going really. on? I just find it so funny. I feel like Dune, this is based on almost nothing at all, but I feel like Dune is one of those books and I guess like lores or whatever that like a lot of people have tried to penetrate but like give up within 40 or 50 pages. I don't I don't know if you're one of those people it's, who've actually tried to the, read the book before.
2: It's the infinite jest of uh, sci-fi yeah.
0: franchises. It kind of is uh, though.
2: Yeah, but it kinda I is. have the book. I do have the book. I've had it since like Christmas a couple of years ago. Haven't cracked it yet. And and frankly, that's nothing really against Dune. It's just that I don't really read books at all anymore. I just don't have time or I spend my time doing other things when I do have free time. So I would like to. Um and after the seeing the movie, I would like to. But realistically, is it gonna happen?
0: Maybe not. I mean, I think the this is I guess starting to segue us and talking about the movie, but I think one of the great things is that because the movie does enough, I think the movie does enough. To give you enough like base of knowledge about the universe to like make those first hundred pages that everyone like bounces off of like a lot easier to get through and then like actually sink yourself in into the meat of it that that might be a conversation that we could come back around to and talk about at the end i don't know brandon yeah. probably has an opinion about that as well but i think with that why don't we just go ahead and, and and jump into it so as i already mentioned today's topic of conversation is a big one it's the notoriously unadaptable dune Based on the 1965 novel, of the same name, written by Frank Herbert, Dune is set in the distant future where the year is 10,191 when the world has progressed to interstellar life across the galaxy, but regressed to a feudal society where various great houses control planetary systems. The film chronicles the story of Paul Atreides, the son of the leader or duke of one of these such houses, the Atreides, whose family accepts the stewardship of the titular Dune or Arrakis. Arrakis is critical to the galaxy's infrastructure because it is the only known source of a rare but powerful substance called melange, or more simply known as spice, a drug that extends life and allows for interstellar space travel. Because Arrakis is the only provider of spice in the galaxy, it is coveted by many of the great houses, primarily the Harkonnens, who are rivals to the Atreides and previously controlled the planet, before the Emperor gifted control back to the Atreides. With an all star cast of Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, and frankly, many more, Dune attempts to wow audiences in terms of acting, visuals, sound, and storytelling. Brandon, I do want to rely on you with your background of uh, the source material in just a moment, but Scott, you're the self proclaimed Dune virgin of the three of us. So, Do you think denny villeneuve has adapted the unadaptable
2: i just want to say first of all i'm insulted that you didn't put stephen mckinley henderson there and the rest of the cast
0: because uh (laughs) he's definitely the mvp you know when he comes on screen he's always great but uh, we can talk about we can talk about his character is a a fascinating one um that has about two minutes of screen time in this movie um but yeah we can get into that for sure
2: I will say I'm not the best person to answer the question of whether he has adapted the unadaptable, because again, I, I don't know, you know, sort of what is missing here. I mean you, the you watch the
0: and, movie, right? I think there's so many, I think, things that go yeah. into that into that question, and we will certainly get to whether it's a good adaptation. That's a big question I think that Brandon and I right. want to give our input on. But just for you, like you watched the movie. Did he did he make a good adaptation?
2: Well, right. Yeah. So again, I can't say whether it's a good adaptation. Yeah. Is it a good movie? yes absolutely um the movie is fantastic it you know it feels like we've been talking about this movie for a year i mean we kind of have because you know it was was on on my my top
0: last last year top anticipated movie of last year i
2: i remember you know going through all the cast lists when that was first announced and being like man everyone is in this thing and you know it is denny villeneuve as you mentioned you know i'm i'm definitely a, a fan of a lot of his work arrival is in my top 100 favorite movies so um but i you know there hasn't really been one of his films i i haven't enjoyed on some level so um i was excited about it for that reason
0: he's never and worked with a cast
2: this big i mean yeah this cast is huge just excited about the prospect of him tackling something yeah that is so notoriously unadaptable and and along with that i think impenetrable to like the the outside viewer as at least what i had heard Personally, I didn't find the film too difficult to follow, which is, I think, is definitely one of its virtues. I mean, there may have been some, I'm sure that there were some things lost from the page to the screen, some complexity, um, some of the density of the novel lost from page to screen. But again, the Duneheads seem to be satisfied with this movie as well. So it seems like that Villeneuve has done a good job of not losing the ethos of the book, but also making a movie that. Appeals to a conventional mainstream audience that just wants to see, you know, Star Wars, right? And at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's probably oversimplifying a little bit, but I do think this comes off as like a more sophisticated Star Wars in a way. Like you have this whole sort of chosen one narrative, right, around um, Paul Atreides, around Timothy Chalamet's character. You have, like you said, this whole sort of interplanetary governmental political angle to it all um that you know we get some of in the movie with the struggle between like the emperor the atreides and then the harkonnens um and you know just just other similarities like the creative um you know like creatures gadgets whatever all that stuff we see feels like you know star, star wars-esque in a way but again it is definitely more sophisticated uh, The ornithopters than, than star wars is yeah um and I do think, you know, for you know, for starters, the most impressive thing about the movie, the number one thing to recommend this movie by is the technical spectacle of the movie, which is, you know, mind-blowing. Um, I saw the movie in IMAX. I do think if I had seen it in a different environment, I don't know, would the movie have connected with me so strongly? I don't know, because I do think the technical you know, aspects of it, like I said, are the the primary force to recommend it by. And normally I'm not the person who would say, well, even though it's more style over, you know, substance, even though it, it resonates on more of a technical level than an emotional level, I still love the movie. That's not, that's generally not how I am, my approach to movies. I am always more about the human story and all of that. But I just think the technical spectacle here is just so impossible to deny the like, brilliance of it feels like i said i think i said this in my review it feels like you are watching the medium of film uh being used in ways that you have never seen before like the the sand the way it like vibrates and like quivers and, and stuff like in some of these shots like I was, like, I literally said, like, wow, and oh, my God, out loud, like, multiple times in the theater, because I felt like I was just seeing stuff that I had had never seen before. The sound design is definitely overwhelming, um, and the score by Hans Zimmer is just, like, constantly there in the background, but I think it, like, it definitely creates an atmosphere. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, I'm not always a fan of, like, the loud, you know, Inception, like, you know, scores or whatever. But something about the whole vastness of the world that is created in this movie, I think, made me accept it a little bit more that, you know, there would be this epic score to match the epic world. And I do think that the world building, again, is is another extremely strong aspect of the movie. I know there's a lot more complexity to it just from, you know, being generally aware of Dune. But I think you understand all, you know, the important places, the important um families the important players and what everyone is trying to do um and he's able to co- to convey all that again in an, in an entertaining fashion over 2 hours and 45 minutes and i do think that the human story is fine i don't i mean it's it's not certainly not something that i was like incredibly emotionally caught up in but it is definitely enough to drive the movie forward, to continue driving the movie forward when the technical spectacle, you know, recedes a little bit. Um, I think the performances are really good. Um, I think the movie is pretty well cast and we'll get into that. Um, but on the whole, the movie absolutely lives up to the hype. It is a triumph um, in just about every every regard. Again, I wasn't expecting to love it quite as much just because I was like, you know, I don't know about Dune. Like, is this really going to connect with me? Yeah. Um, because it's probably going to be more of a technical spectacle. But again, I think it speaks to the brilliance of Villeneuve's filmmaking, that it was all of those things that I expected it to be, and yet I was still enraptured by it. Like, I could not take my eyes off of the screen for how long this movie was. And it, it yes. definitely, we've reviewed a lot of long movies here this year. I think this Very one probably too. Yeah. moves the quickest of any of them, at least for me. So, um, couldn't recommend it more.
0: Yeah, you know, going into Friday night, Cause I, the first time I saw this movie several weeks ago, I was lucky enough to see it early and you know, it'd been two weeks and I was like, you know, I think Scott, this is going to be like a four or four and a half star movie for Scott. Like, I don't think that he's going to like go completely, um, all, all in on this thing. And then we watched the film like roughly the same time, I think on, on Friday night and like halfway through this movie, I'm like, no, no, no. I think Scott's really good. is, is I think the things that I had like feared might've been holes, when I was watching it for the second time, and I'll and I'll talk more about this in a second. I do want to go to Brandon. Like I don't feel like they were, I didn't. They weren't there. Like I remember them to be. I guess when I watched movie. like it was just it really held together extremely well. And so, so happy to hear you loved it so much, Brandon. Let's hear from you. What did? What were your general impressions on the movie? And then maybe we can also start talking a little bit about the the adaptation element as well. So that that is something that I want to dive in deeper to later.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um. So obviously, I'm a big book fan. So it's obviously you you always take that into account when you're seeing one of these things and so for that reason i think in reviewing this movie for me i think it's important to kind of put it into context where you know thursday i saw this movie for the first time and i was sort of i I had all this hype in my mind you know and i had so much hype that i i I had seen little snippets of it before it like a you know a, a preview thing um and it was all built up, you know, and so I went in and it was almost a little unfortunate in that I had this like checklist in my head, you know, of like all these favorite little bits from the book. And, you know, trying to check off which were in, which weren't in. Yeah. And I still really loved it is the thing. Um, it was a great experience Thursday night, you know, and I came away having a lot of discussion um, with other people that I know um, that love Dune. And um then I saw it again on Friday night, you know, and I think that was a better experience. Um, and I came away with an even better impression of strictly the film now, right? Because I had seen it Thursday. I I knew what it was going in on some level. And I put that all away. I put yeah. the whole checklist away. And I tried not to focus then, and I, or I, was, I wasn't focusing on what the movie wasn't, you know? I was focusing on what the movie was, which I think, you know, I would say it's a masterpiece, really. Um, and I tend to actually kind of overrate things. Um, I'll be honest; it's just who I am as a person. I I give so many things like perfect scores. Um, so take take my opinion Live with a grain truth. of salt. Uh, uh, okay? I'm, I'm, no I'm problem either. with that. Yeah, yeah. Take it with a grain of salt. I. I rate things rather highly as a general trend. We have a notorious Um, podcast
0: guest who doesn't rate anything lower than like a seven. So it's fine.
1: Yeah. 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 I'm kind of the same way, honestly. Um, and and I'll offer an interesting counterpoint as a, as a general opinion about the movie too, to like something that, um, Scott said earlier, giving his um, initial impressions and it's, it regards, you know, star Wars, which obviously I think is something that's just unavoidable in this discussion. Um, because it's just so ingrained in the pop culture of the world and our country. Um, And I think that it kind of has an uphill battle right um, against Star Wars because, you know, most people don't know the history behind, you know, which came first, which influenced what. Um, But I think what's so impressive about this movie is that you go in and you watch it and it just, to me at least, it didn't seem like Star Wars, you know? And maybe that's because I knew the source material so well, but just visually speaking and the score and everything, it just it felt like something completely new, which I think is, is difficult um, to achieve for something like this in which yeah. so much of pop culture in terms of sci-fi has been based off of. It just, you know, like, I think the best shot that sort of gets at what I'm describing is the shot of um, <clears throat> the Guild Highliner, which, you know, in layman's speak, is basically the big spaceship. And as it's, you know, going through space. And I just feel like it was a completely unique piece of sci-fi right there. And it didn't feel like anything else that had come before it. And I thought that was very, very impressive. Um, So yeah, I guess those are some of my general impressions. Um, I can get in more specifics, obviously, you know? Yeah, no, we definitely, we definitely will. I think it's, it's so, it's so, I, I really love
0: the way you put about like you went in the first time and you had your checklist, that checklist may be different for every, Dune fan who's familiar with the source material, but you go into that checklist and it's not something that I had explicitly thought about, but I, I think that has to also have been true for me when I saw this movie for the first time, you know, subconsciously or otherwise, you know, a few weeks back. Cause you sit, cause I have the same experience. You sit there and you're like, okay, this is the direction they're going with this. Like okay, they're, they're choosing to focus more on, you know, this particular theme or these particular characters and some who are quite prominent in the book, you know, completely kind of thrown on the back burner for, you know, one reason or another, we can maybe get into that, although I don't want to completely isolate Scott from the conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I think that's such a great way to put it, because I, I loved the movie the first time I saw it, I'll be honest, like I gave it five stars on Letterboxd, you know, maybe I hadn't drilled down into a very specific, a more specific score than that. But I'm like, oh, this thing's incredible for all these reasons that I think everyone who's loving this movie is saying. And the second time, especially with two weeks to have digested, we you know what I had seen, going back into the theater and I just I really do feel like I just sort of like surrendered to the film more and I think that's a really great point that you're making there and I think that might have even been why you know halfway through what I was talking halfway through I'm like you know a, a lay person is going I think is for the most part going to really enjoy this movie because I think it is incredibly watchable I think some of the sacrifices to the adaptation um, in the adaptation department are done to make it more accessible, to make it more watchable as a film. And I think that as, as sad is too strong of a word, but as somewhat disappointed I might be that we're losing, I think, a big part of the novel. And I think what makes it and elevates the novel beyond something like Star Wars, um, which did, you know, I, I know that Star Wars did not start off as a novel, but uh, elevates it past other parts of the sci-fi genre. I I do think it's a sacrifice worth making to make a a movie that has to appeal to a really broad audience um and i'm not someone who you know wants to like wall off something that that i love so much so that it it becomes inaccessible to others so i think i i appreciate it for what it is in that respect and then talking about something that feels distinct from other sci-fi and you know start i mean that is definitely the things that i've seen in the conversation around Star Wars and some people just like ludicrously saying it feels the same as Star Wars. I I just literally don't know what those people are talking about because I think visually sonically um, architecturally, if that's the right way to put it, like just nothing looks or sounds like Star Wars in this movie Um, except I guess there is space and moons. Um, I don't know. Like, I just don't know how to respond to people who say that this feels like Star Wars, like generic Star Wars stuff. Um, I don't know how to engage in the conversation with those people, but I loved this movie even more the second time I saw it I think you know I mean Hans Zimmer is just like absolutely off his rocker on this score I mean this guy's absolutely crazy um, what he's doing and and I was able to actually hear him talk a lot about the production of the score from when I saw the film at the New York Film Festival he and Denis Villeneuve were both there and he was talking about how like most of the score is rec- was recorded during COVID and there's just like this there's this woman who he was working with to do a lot of like the choral uh vocal overtones and everything it's just in a closet just in a small closet just recording it's just like incredible uh, you think about i feel like my my mental image of when all these things are happening is like you're in these huge concert halls and you have like a hundred piece orchestras or something like that and, and you know a recording studio for these sort of vocal overtones and no i mean like bootstrapping these things together during covid uh, it, i think it adds an even extra like element of you know, awe, inspiringness of it to be able to to do that sort of stuff um sonically in in, in the sort of setting that they had to deal with because this was I mean they were trying to originally release the movie towards the end of the year uh in 2020 and so most of this was happening like right at the beginning when people were still trying to figure out even how to operate um during you know, during pandemic times. So yeah, just really remarkable film um you know, before we get Actually, I think, yeah, sorry, sorry, Scott, I think we are just gonna talk about the adaptation now. Uh, you know, actually, no, we'll we'll save it to the end, because I think there's plenty to talk about before that. You know, there, there are a lot of performances uh, in this film. I think Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson are the clear leads of the movie, if you can call them that, but there's supporting performances all around. I rattled off a whole bunch of names. At the start, you also threw in Stephen McKinley Henderson, which is totally fair. There's also David Desmalkian, um, who has a very minor supporting role. Also, there is... Um,
2: did you mention Dave Bautista?
0: Dave Bautista, that's who I was about to mention, who plays, um, I think, Glow Sue Rabin, or the Beast Rabin. He goes by a couple different names. And there's, again, there's just lots of people to choose from, Scott. Uh, what did you think of Timothy Chalamet?
2: He's he's a great actor. He's he's, you know, already proven himself a fantastic young talent in some of his, uh, you know, first movies, you know, Call Me By Your Name kind of being his breakthrough, Little Women, you know, being one that I'm particularly fond of. Um, But he's yeah, yeah, he fits the the what I, you know, think this character is supposed to be in my limited, you know, understanding of Dune. Uh, he he fits it well i mean he captures that angst of being like a kid just on the cusp of like adulthood first of all he looks like a kid right like he he looks very young and i think that is important he's not been
0: platinum over here and yeah i
2: I think that is important for the role um, because we're supposed to believe that people would look at him and be like really this kid is supposed to be you know the the messiah-like the figure yeah. right uh the muadib or whatever it's called um him and i I mean that's definitely what i think when i look at timothy shallowman no offense to him uh, i mean they even joke i mean you know there's the joke about oh you've you've been working out or whatever uh that duncan idaho says to him and he's like yeah or he's like really and, and he's like no you look the exact same but um <laughs> But, yeah, I think he just, like, emotionally he captures that angst of, like, um, you know, the pressure that he suddenly all, is all of a sudden facing to um, be this person that, you know, people believe him to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the This Messiah-like figure, especially, you know, after what happens halfway through the film. I mean, I don't know if we're spoiling anything yet, but um, when a particular event happens in the film and he's thrust particularly into the spotlight – Um, I think he captures that uncertainty well, but also, you know, he, even though this story is incomplete, he does have an arc over the course of the movie. And by the end, we start to see him grow in confidence more and starting to embrace that role. Um, you know, obviously the movie ends, basically ends with him, you know, taking on this member of the Freeman, um, in a one-on-one, uh, you know, one V one showdown.
0: Um, James Jameis.
2: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, that right there, he's never killed a man before, right? And he's put in a situation where he basically has to kill or be killed. Um, And, you know, again, I I think uh, he, his arc is, is interesting to watch and is driving a lot of the the storytelling aspect of the movie the human story of the movie and i just think timothy chalamet is a magnetic presence i, I think he was you know I can't, I can't imagine a better casting for this role again the way i imagine the role so um i can't i can't fault his performance i think it's definitely one of the strongest in the movie for me
0: yeah. brandon what did, what did you think about timothy chalamet
1: so i'll start off saying this obviously i i love this book and I know sort of the characterizations in the book. And I'll just say that if you read the passages that describe this character in the book, it basically is just Timothy Sheldon. But okay. all of that is just a bonus, I think, compared to the actual things that really matter in terms of the acting, which are, you know, I think he brings, you know, that exact, like they did the, that human emotional element to the story that, that, drives it along and makes it something other than just you know action thing goes into action thing you know so on and so forth um and i think that the most important part about him yeah is that he looks like a child but also looks wise you know um and i think that's sort of the perfect encapsulation of the character you know in i guess both i guess if you can call the whole movie a moment but you know you can see the growth throughout the movie, as some Scott said, um, starting off a bit more, you know, just like, you know, shrugging off training, those sorts of things. And then by the end you see has really grown to accept, you know, his role. Yeah. Um, embrace it, make tough decisions. Yeah. Embrace it, make tough decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really loved his performance and I mean, on some level it's, it's one of those performances, you know, where it's like when you, for those people who decide that they really loved the movie and they decide to pick up the book, I think it's going to be difficult not to imagine Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides. I, I think that's just, that's how good of a performance it was. And I mean, that's just a credit to him, really.
0: Yeah, I, I read the book for the first time after it had been announced that he was in the cast. And I certainly, even before watching the movie, it was really hard for me to picture any other visualization of the character other than than Chalamet because he does he does fit the description and I think he certainly delivers I think that the particular thing that I love and this ties into the arc element of the performance is that you really you know this is an actor who is the hottest young male actor in Hollywood it's just fact and I think there's a lot of confidence that comes with that I'm sure there's a lot of you know intimidation that comes with playing a part like this in Dune as well. So maybe it washes out in the end. But I think one of the most remarkable things about the performance is just how unassured he comes off at the beginning. And that and obviously that's very understandable for the position of this character. But as someone who I feel like has, I mean, he's kind of at the at the top, if you think about it in terms of likability from a fan perspective and also desire to be casted from an industry perspective. And just to sort of bring that, you know security that might come with that position in the industry and leave that at the door. Um, And even at the end, as the character grows, I feel like you, they're still like, he is more assured. He is more assertive. He's more decisive, but you still, I feel like you still see like, it's clear to me, or at least it feels like to me that he's still like, he's choosing to be these things, but he doesn't, he isn't quite those things yet. Like he's pushing towards that. And that's where the growth is. But there's yeah. like a question well, yeah, mark still on it. Because well. we see
2: him being kind of reckless, you know, early yeah. on in the movie, right? Like, first right. of all, he wants to go with Duncan Idaho in the beginning, like when yeah. they leave for Arrakis early because of the vision that he's had. But then later during the sequence where they're like rest trying to rescue, you know, the people from the, yeah, what I mean, what like space station like thing or what
0: is it that's, that's... the spice harvester? Yeah.
2: yeah. Um,
0: you know, the desert. He,
2: yeah. Yeah, he 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 basically puts himself in particular danger to try and complete the mission um to the point where you know he gets a, a proper scolding by um his father. So he understands he starts to understand the responsibility that he has but yeah. doesn't necessarily understand how to best go about fitting that image, I guess. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what is that messiah-like figure supposed to be, I guess?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's something that he really I, th- I mean, there's a particular scene in the film where it's him, him and Rebecca Ferguson in the tent in their tent before they set out across the desert where he has this like really intense vision of what of what a, a potential future might be. And I think that that's like that's like the real moment in the film where you're like he 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 really begins to appreciate how grandiose like his path you know in quotation marks is and the responsibility that he like knew in an ambiguous way that was on his shoulders as the head of house atreides and you know maybe before that moment what he envisioned as like rehabilitating that post well you know the events of the film so far but then like beginning to appreciate that 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 weight that is on his shoulders might even be more immense that and i think that's like that's a big turning point i think in, in the performance for me and i again it's not like one thing i preach about the nuance of the performance is not that like it's like a light switch that flips and all of a sudden he is this really mature really like wise leader of house atreides of but rather it is like a very continuous step process that he's going through and even at the end it's not like he has it all figured out i mean he certainly does not have it all figured out and you know light spoiler yeah. i don't know if he i don't know if he ever figures it out but um yeah uh.
1: yeah and um, another thing that i really liked about his performance um you know the character in general but but you know i think timothy chalamet portrays a very accurate and great performance as sort of having this dichotomy going yeah. um where on one hand you know he starts out you know trying to find his place in a certain sense and again like we talked about you know has to make difficult decisions and sort of grows into into his role, you know, in in the universe, so to speak. But at the same time, you know, as as the film keeps going, it, it seems like there are all these undercurrents that his character is getting more and more swept away in, you know, and sort of losing footing more and more throughout the film. Um, and I think that's a really great dichotomy, um, you know, because like think they, they, um, at the beginning of the movie, you know you know, his character Paul Atreides, and his performance, he's, he seems to sort of not understand, you know, the situation, right? Um, yeah. He's talking to Gurney Halleck, played by Josh Brolin, um, who is just like, you know, you don't really understand the dangerous situation we're in here. And so he goes from that not really understanding to just sort of being swept away, you know, and being like, oh my gosh, this is really dangerous and trying to get a control of things through some difficult decisions. Um, And I really love that dichotomy. I think it shined um, in Timothy's performance. Yeah, totally.
0: There's also a bunch of other people in the cast. We've talked a lot about Timothy Chalamet, and I think that is for a good reason. But other members of the Atreides household and sort of extended advisors, Scott, there's Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Lady Jessica, which is Timothy's mom, and uh, the Duke Leto Atreides uh, concubine. I I don't know if they ever say that in... Yeah, they, they clarify that in the movie that they're not married. Yeah, they do. Um, There's also Oscar Isaac, who plays the Duke Lido. There is Gurney Halleck, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, plays Duncan Idaho. Did anyone in particular there stand out to you? I mean, obviously, I think – I shouldn't say obviously. Rebecca Ferguson has the largest role of those people. Yeah. But is she the one who stands out to you of, like, the supporting in the family? Or is there someone else that sort of jumped off the screen for you?
2: Yeah, I think she's one of the two of the ones that you mentioned there. I mean – just such an arresting like screen presence at this point. Like, she's got to be one of the most badass actresses out there. Between like her work here, her, you know, the Mission Impossible movies, obviously. Even Dr. Sleep, her she really pops up. The as Rose Sleep. the Hat. Yeah, yeah. Was exactly. She's all she's almost always one of the most interesting things about the movie, if not the most interesting thing about the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think the that remains true here because you know, again, revelations are being made about her character over the course of the movie. Like, you know, she seems to have some sort of mystical power beyond, you know, what the regular humans have as well. Um, and this oh, yes. the
0: she's a Bene Gesserit for those who we will going to put that on the shelf and we're going to come back to the Bene Gesserit's. But keep going. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And she has like the she the what she captures, I think, is like that anguish of seeing her young son put in very dangerous situations, but also at the same time, understanding that that's what has to happen if, you know, the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Um So that's sort of the, the central conflict that she has. I mean, I think she has some really strong scenes in the movie, you know, when he goes through his first test, when he puts his hand in the box and she's, you know, outside the the room again sort of the anguish that she has there she has the Um, iconic
0: line fear is the mind killer yeah the only one who says it in the movie
2: but then when she has to step up and take a more proactive role um you know i think she's obviously very effective at at doing that again i think her past roles that's what she's often doing she is often more the more commanding presence so i think she's excellent in the movie and Jason Momoa is the other person that I, um, you know, really enjoyed, I think. He doesn't have a ton of screen time as Duncan Idaho. But again, he fits exactly what this character, I feel like, should be, right? Of this sort of, like, larger-than-life mentor for Paul. This guy who he feels like is invincible. And we see, you know, we're spo- we can go spoilers at this point, you know. Sure. We see him almost trying to fulfill Paul's idea of him as being invincible, right? In that scene where he goes out, it's like um you know he looks like he's dead at one point he gets back up uh you know goes for another round eventually he does get get um overcome but it's almost like this moment of you know another moment of paul having to come to terms with reality um because like here's this guy who again he sees as like this invincible larger than life figure and um you know he's not going to be there anymore um all of all of sort of the the male authority figures in his life are getting picked off you know like we, duncan idaho dies obviously his father dies um i guess i guess gurney is still alive at the end but um you know he they don't seem to have a super close relationship so
0: um
2: yeah those are, those are the two i would point to but i don't think anyone
0: here is a weak link yeah i mean we don't see gurney Hallick or two for hawat that's student Stephen mckinley anderson die um in the movie um so i would be willing to bet that you'll see them in the sequel if it does come around but yeah i think that rebecca ferguson i mean such an again i don't want to go off the deep end because I, again i knew she was lady jessica so when i was reading the book i did picture her in the role But the presence that you're talking about, Scott, I think that that is the thing that sticks out so much for me as her, because this is the kind of performance. And I think in many ways actually is the most emotional of the performances in the movie. You have this big sort of like maturation journey for Paul. And obviously that comes with a lot of emotions, but I think like the actual like matured emotional conflict in the film, actually centers on what's happening with Rebecca Ferguson's character. And I think that her ability to command both the screen and also the the breadth of the per, uh, and the range of the performance that she's able to deliver is is really powerful. As for other characters that might stick out, I think Jason Momoa is a great shout. I think the truth is that not many others get very much time to shine, um, especially you know with the exception of Oscar Isaac, maybe who I think is a really great Duke Leto as well. Again, the sort of reality of his character, and this is. I think maybe Brandon will disagree, with me, but I think that's pretty his his character is like the one that feels like w- of supporting that, like actually feels like accurately translated from the book. Like he, the amount of screen time he has in the movie feels comparable to the amount of time they give the character in the book, um, you know, of these like more minor character, I don't want to say more minor, but like less like more supporting type characters. But Brandon, were any other performances that stuck out uh, out for you besides the ones that Scott talked about? Maybe even someone outside of the Atreides family, if if any of the Harkonnens or anyone there might have stood out.
1: Um, yeah, so I was going to say Oscar Isaac. Um, yeah. I really like Oscar Isaac's uh, performance as Duke Leto. Um, he has, a, we, he we just has such a great
0: warmth, a I feel like. Oh, yeah. Oh, a great I, warmth.
1: Well, you know, I think, and it's difficult too, because like I'm trying to, in describing what I liked about their characterizations, avoid spoilers, you know? Sure. Um you can spoil yeah. it, it, uh, no, no, a film. No, no. Well, you can certainly yeah, yeah. spoil not, not spoil that the book, film stuff, but yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, let's just say that I re- I really loved his characterization, um, and it felt very true to the book. I would say, yeah. um, which is not necessarily you know the merits of the movie, right? Um, obviously, it's we we separate those. Um, but I, re- I really loved his performance. I think he's a great actor. Um, I mean, he's been been in so much stuff. That's great. I really liked Rebecca Ferguson's performance. I know. We talked about her a lot already, and I agree with a lot of the points made. Um, I really like Stellan Skarsgård. Um, the Baron. I thought he was very, very menacing um, as the Baron, um, and it had a really phenomenal presence, um, albeit, you know, not not a ton of screen time, right? Yeah. Um, although in, in a movie with this this many cast members, it's it's kind of difficult to get that amount of screen time. But I think in every scene he was in, it was very menacing, right? Um I, I don't.
0: I don't want to get too hopeful, but like, mm-hmm. I have a theory about where they might, what they exactly how they might go about doing the second the second part of this, and I mm-hmm. and I wonder if there's like a much larger focus on yeah on the Harkonnens. because I don't I don't think it's like a huge spoiler to say that the amount of screen time or time that you spend with the Harkonnens in the movie is significantly less than actually what you get in the book um, from what I at least up to the, this point. Um, in, in the story. And that, that's one of the things that I certainly noted. Um, so I wonder if they will sort of like try to like close the loop on that and sort of make up some lost ground on some of the those characters and maybe a few others as well that they don't give much attention to in this, but are still certainly relevant. Um, but Sorry, I interrupted you.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. That's perfectly fine. Um, and I sort of actually share your suspicions about that. Um, I yeah. have some hopes for part two, if, if it comes, you know, which fingers crossed for that. Um, and I actually have some other things that I think they can circle back to quite nicely. But on, on the topic of characterization, um, I'll say that I really liked um, David um, because Peter I Peter DeVries. Yeah, Peter DeVries. Uh, I, yeah. I think he's just a great character actor. I mean, in everything I've ever yeah. seen him in, um, you know, some Denise stuff as well. Um, even love stuff. He's having a year. Just...
0: I mean, between Polka Dot Man and then this.
1: And, you know, I actually haven't seen his performance as Polka-Dot Man, but I heard good things. Um, so
0: Sufficiently deranged, I would say. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that's kind of his thing, right? You know, he's, he's good at that. Um, totally. I think he, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because he was one of the few performances in the movie where my my interpretation of the character from the book was definitively different. Mm. And it will it will still always be different when I read the book. But yeah. his performance, you know, it stood by itself you know and so you have to separate them and i think his performance yeah. was great you know in his own interpretation and i guess Denise's interpretation also of the character um
0: I, I'm, I'm curious i don't want to spin us off too too far with this but do, do you just visualize or 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 read the character as being just like just like frankly like much more evil and like just really menacing like obviously he's a schemer in this film he comes off as a big schemer and it's not clear, I don't think, in the movie, but he is essentially to Baron Harkonnen, the the Stephen McKinley Henderson two for Hawat equivalent. Scott, I don't know if if you picked up on that at all, but he's a uh, this. I don't even know what the right like he is called a Mentat basically, mm-hmm. and then the two of them. So when there's the one scene earlier on where two for Hawat does this like really like crazy mathematical calculation or whatever, and his like eyes roll into the back of his head, um, like that is like a function of of these type of people able to do these sort of like calculation strategy type things and David S. Malkin is that for Baron Harkonnen sorry but anyway that's kind of the primer for that but yeah keep going
1: oh um I'm sorry did you have a question too I think I think you were posing a question um,
0: oh yeah sorry I was more asking like did you just view it as much more evil like much more menacing it was kind of it, it did feel like a bit of like a light interpretation of the character to me again not much screen time not much not much to do with it frankly but i'm just curious like what where the where the divergence was for you
1: sure i think the divergence for me um the divergence for me was sort of in this this piter de vries as played by des felt more controlled Mm -hmm. um and more more in control of things and Yeah. yeah a schemer for sure i that came across and that i i I like that um, and I, I like his whole performance of course yeah but um, it was definitely a more cool and collected Peter degrees yeah um, as compared to my personal interpretation but I mean this is an adaptation right you know yeah. it's all up to interpretation um, in a certain sense um, sure. but I really liked his performance and I wish he got more screen time mm-hmm. um, I think I think a lot of people are disappointed by that because you know people like him people like David Desnohin which is understandable yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who who haven't we talked about? Because well, there's
0: Charlotte Rampling who plays the, yeah, yes, the old yes. the, the Reverend Mother,
1: Gaius Helena. Mahiner. I loved her in that role. Actually, yeah. um, I think she did really well. Um, you know, and even more, so I know that I feel like the role everyone's going to talk about with regard to her performance is the Gom Jabbar scene, mm-hmm. uh, the, the pain box scene. You know, with the needle. Um, I think that's the the scene everyone's going to talk about.
0: But it's I the really, flashy one. It's the one that's in the yeah, like trailers. Yeah.
1: But yeah. I really love um, the scene where she's talking to Jessica, yeah. um, to Lady Jessica on her way out uh, from Caladan. Um, I think that was, it was great. Because it, it was one of those performances, right, where it, it sort of had a lot of exposition in there, you know, but it was so subtle that you barely noticed it was expo- exposition, um, yeah. you know, because there was still a lot of characterization there. Um, yeah, I really liked that
0: scene specifically with her. Well, I think that notion too about this whole this whole idea of a lot of exposition, and this is a question that I had, I think, primarily for Scott, but I think that that Brandon and I can weigh in on as well as we segue out of talking about characters here. Is that like part of the unadaptability of something like Dune? Right, it's just like the huge barrier to entry on the terminology they use, the the lore or certain parts of the lore. Uh, obviously, terminology is part of that. And as a result of that barrier existing, there's obviously a lot of things that have to be explained to the audience. There's there is fundamentally exposition that needs to happen for you to even remotely understand what's happening on the screen. Sometimes, and Scott, kind of, I'm just curious. It, obviously, you were in, you said you're engaged and completely absorbed by the by the event, but I'm I'm curious what your explicit thoughts are. And like, did it ever did you ever feel like you were getting sucked out of the story or the narrative? With particular ways of exposition or do you think that villeneuve and and everyone involved was able to sort of piece and stitch the exposition into certain parts whether it's like the like the the videos that paul's watching about arrakis or these moments like brandon you know one of which brandon's describing with the reverend mother like do you felt like that it was just really smooth because i mean there's so many movies that obviously can feel way too expository um and to me, I guess, but I don't have a clean perception of this. It felt like they were doing the best they could to like, try to drip feed it to you to do what you needed, but not overwhelm you and take the first 45 minutes to just, <laughs> just talk at you.
2: Yeah. And no, I think that was my reaction to like, it never felt like I was reading an encyclopedia or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, my approach always is on these films like this. And I think we talked about it with Tenet to Scott, like, yeah. I would rather that you explain it to me than you not explain it to me. Like if you want right. to be a little hand wavy about it, like then I'm willing to forgive that, you know, because we get the benefit of it actually being explained to us and not just like left sure. for us to figure out. And especially something like this, again, when it's incredibly dense, there's a lot of, like, it, it has its own language basically. Um, like it it needs to be spelled out in a more heavy handed fashion than you would see. In I mean, there and
0: there is literally so, a glossary in the back of the first yeah. book for terms like, but yeah, but again, I a rack, never, and things like that. Yeah.
2: I never felt like we were, you know, just getting terms explained to me. Like I, I never felt like it got to that level. So I personally didn't have a problem with it. I think the people who have commented on it, um, probably, do not want to see what the film would look like if that exposition was, <laughs> you know, largely yeah. taken out.
0: Everyone's just wondering why the shields are like, not working the way that they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is another one of the scenes where they have like Gurney Halleck explaining how shields work to Paul, um, who clearly does not need an explanation of how shields work, but they like work it in there um, so the audience understands. Because otherwise you're just like, why are they swinging their swords so slowly? It's part of, it's part of building a world. Like yeah. it's just an uh, inevitable part of it. Brandon, what what did you think as someone kind of like me, who I mean, even more so than me, has a really intimate understanding with the the terminology and the lore of the world?
1: Um, as it was portrayed in the movie, as, yeah. As the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. um, and it's interesting too because I haven't really talked about this movie too much with people who who don't know it. Um, yeah. So actually, I think like speaking to to Scott, um, I think this is my first real big conversation about the movie. Um, not, nothing in you know that wasn't in passing. Um, this is someone who like, wasn't familiar before. And so I, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while because to me, I went into this movie and I'll be honest, the first time I came out of it, um, on, on Thursday, I came out of it and I was like, oh, well that was amazing. But I have literally no idea how anyone's going to follow this if they haven't read the book. Like, and, and mm. that could have just been like a surface, that could have just been a surface, right? A, a surface level analysis yeah and 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 that's clearly wrong, right? Because a lot of people are really into it, you know, and felt like they were able to follow along enough to where they were really interested by it. and you know, they want to go see it again and they want to go get their friend's copy of the book and they want part two to come out. So clearly that isn't what happened, right. But I think me i I sort of came out of it being like, yeah, man, is anyone gonna understand this? You know, it's so and, and that's interesting. not even that's not even critiquing yeah. um that's not even really really a critique of the movie because it's more just like, my initial gut reaction was just like wow this is it's going to be tough but um I think clearly that's that's not been the case right so yeah. um, obviously Danine knows what he's doing more than me cuz yeah I yeah he, he, I, he did it with no more
0: than me. He right? did it
2: with Blade Runner too in, in its own in his own way. Like I yep. I have not still not seen the original Blade Runner, actually. Yep. But I know. Uh it's it's like possibly my biggest blind spot movie-wise. But um no. No. I saw 2049, felt like I understood everything and loved the movie. So
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I find it so interesting because there's part of me that thought the same thing, Brandon, and and I just wonder if it's people who are familiar with with the novel with the source material they're able to sort of connect dots on things that other people who aren't familiar just like their their brains like not even there right like they're not trying to piece together parts of the narrative that aren't being shown right um with with the parts that are whereas i'm over here like oh like this thing is happening off screen that no one's known about. but like the way that it's adapted like it just moves through it and you, and you don't have to like overthink it um Whereas the book like does dwell a lot on some of these on some of these moments that um you know they they frankly like are being skipped over because you know for the necessity of of the adaptation, I suppose. But you know, I do want to talk about the adaptation side of things in a moment. But one thing that I, you know, we tabled for the time being it was talking about some of the themes, and one of those is the Bene Gesserits, which is a religious sect that's a part of this universe. Uh, We know that Lady Jessica, Paul's mother, is a Bene Gesserit. Um, They are the group, the religious group, of which the Reverend Mother, who we we just spoke about moments ago, is a close advisor to many of the great houses and the emperor himself who doesn't ever show up in the movie, but we know he's there. And, you know, one of the overarching themes, from my understanding, for all of the Dune books is this notion of like religion and philosophy. I think that there are parts of it. In the movie. Um, I don't want this to like sink into a discussion of like all the philosophy of the book. But Scott, I'm curious what like what you make of, if anything, of the Benny Gesserits and this sort of like, and I think this goes almost ties back into Rebecca Ferguson's performance, right? Like she's having to essentially balance these multiple plates. and like, you know, one plate is she her connection to the Atreides house, and this other connection is the fact that she is a member of the, like she's a Bene Gesserit. Um, She's a witch. She's, you know, this sort of, you know, feared person um, in society. And I'm curious, like what, what, if anything you make, if you don't make anything of it, just say, so We can move on. But I'm curious like what you make, because it is like a big theme. Um, And one of the big, like one of the huge deals of this is that this sort of like religious and like the religiosity of this is so inherently tied. And I don't want to, again, don't want to dive too deep down, but like with Muslim culture and Islam, um, and that's like a, a big part of that between the Benny Gesserits and the and the Freeman. But w- what did you make of, of this? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think it all just sort of plays into the larger theme that I find the most interesting, which is kind of about how it seems like we're headed towards this scenario where all these sort of ostracized social groups are going to sort of come together to fight evil, right? You have the Benny Gesserit, being one you have the fremen being another um Mm. and i you know definitely like that idea i think that's an idea that is you know has a lot of relevance in um in today's culture so i don't know that it means a lot more to me beyond that yet um other than again like yeah here here you got the benny jessert are kind of like um the religiously ostracized ostracized for their religion almost it seems in a way and then you have like the the fremen the fremen who are maybe sort of the more racially ethnically um
0: they're they're indigenous
2: yeah um and so i i I like where that is headed at the moment is is really what my thoughts are on it
0: yeah i I think the interesting note about feeling that the Benny Jesuits are like an ostracized religious group. I think they are feared by a lot of like the n- normal members of society, but they are certainly held close by a lot of the leaders because of their, their powers, right? Their ability to, you know, have these sort of visions and see the future to an extent, right? There's, there's sort of an asterisk on, the, on the, I think they call the Reverend Mother a truth, a truth, a truth seer see, at one point in the film because she, and like she is an advisor to the emperor because she can see the future. And that is like part of her powers. And that's part of the Bene Gesserit powers. And they have this like ultimate goal of divining or manifesting this, this person, this human being that they just call like the Kwisatz Haderach, which is, you know, the Messiah, which would be what the Fremen would call, call him the Mahdi. But they think of this person as like the, the ultimate, embodiment of like Benny Jesuit powers who can like essentially rule the world um, more or less. That's like an oversimplification probably, but, but that, and so it is an interesting thing. I, I, I do agree that I don't think that the movie offers you too much to latch onto with that religious element. Brandon, I don't know if you feel differently than that, but I'd be curious what, what you think of the movie's portrayal of the Benny Jesuits. And it's certainly an element that I think gets a little bit lost in translation to this point in the story, again, maybe something they're gonna they want to explore more in part two. I don't know, but what did you think?
1: Yeah, and see, the thing is, this is kind of difficult to talk about for me, right? Because, yeah, that's fair. Um, Having read the books, you know, yeah. you, you kind of know what's going on a bit more. So, I guess it all comes down to whether or not you know I should be the one on this podcast who's like, Oh, um, actually, anyway, just interpreting like, how it came across the movie. Well, no, yeah. no, and I and mean, no, I think, no, that, and no, I think that's course.
0: very valid. That I'm not surprised that yeah, that was your interpretation yeah, yeah. at all.
1: I think that I, I think that be, I would say it's been underdeveloped at this point, yeah. you know. And yeah. um, I would think the only way you can see the clarity um, behind those sort of uh, religious aspects of the movie so far are if you read the book, I, and and that's probably a you know a knock on the movie to a certain degree, right? Um, but but then again, this is only part one of part two, so yeah. you know. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, if, and when part two comes out, they're almost going to need to be treated as the same movie, right? Cause they're portraying yeah. the same source material, like, a like one singular book. Yep. So, um, I, I think I sort of, I would critique it if this were all we were getting. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's worthy of withholding too much judgment on, on that matter, you know, until we've yeah. hopefully seen more. Right. But I do think it's been generally speaking a little underdeveloped um so far
0: yeah and and i think another i think i i agree you know full stop i would say with that with that take i think that there's another theme that's pretty underdeveloped although you can like you can like feel this one a little bit more than i think with religion and that is the sort of like political subterfuge um and like a lot of like frankly most of the like the the intra Atreides conflict is like just completely extracted out of this, out of this movie. Um, There's, there's so few scenes between different members um, of, of Atreides that aren't of the of the house atreides that aren't Paul, right? Like you, you basically get none of the scenes with two or Gurney um, even Duncan Idaho between, you know, Rebecca Ferguson um lady jessica and duke leto you don't get much of that you get like one scene of it um and i think i could be very wrong but like i i think that they are going they they did that in part one because they wanted to make something something that was like really approachable really watchable to get everyone engaged and i think they're going to lean like a lot harder into like the potential like the trickier things to adapt like it's trickier to make philosophy and religion something that's gonna like grab the attention of millions of people to go like buy an IMAX ticket for it's like trickier to adapt this like grandiose story of like spies and political subterfuge and political conflict the way that a lot of the first half of Dune relies on to sort of grab and build tension but I think that they're going to lean more into that in the second book, I just I, I can only assume that because that there's a lot of flavor there. I think that's that's been that's not been incorporated, um um to date. But one thing that is incorporated a lot, of course, is the world itself, right? Like that's like if there's one thing Scott, you even mentioned it. We talk about general impressions. It's like, yes, I think the stories are engaging to an extent, like particularly the story of of Paul and 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 maybe to some extent Lady Jessica as well. But the world, the visuals the sound design these like these technical aspects and the world building aspects that really grab people and I'd love to sort of dive a little bit deeper into that as well Brandon why don't we go to you first like what did you think of this particular visualization adaptation you know thinking adaptation specifically here um of the world of Dune
1: well um I'll say in short that I I really loved it um and I, I've seen that people have, have, some people have said, oh, there's, like, no color. Where is the color? But I, I really like it. Um, I, I think I saw an early review of the movie, or maybe maybe a test screening, that they called it, like, "What a, uh, quote, a brutalist nightmare or something, because of all the, like, brutalist architecture. It, it certainly is brutalist, and, although I wouldn't call it a yeah. nightmare. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, you know, they were just being sensationalist, I think, a bit sure. um, with that remark. But... Uh, not not in a bad way, just you know, sensationalist to get a headline. Um, overall, I really really loved it, um, and I think they 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 nailed it really. Yeah. Um, there's certain things that I think world building wise, um, and and were certainly helped by the score that just you know made it. I, I sort of talked about this in my general impressions, but it felt like its own thing, um, you know, which I think was such a hard task. Um, and one of the reasons why, well, just one of the reasons that, you know, this was so hard to adapt, um, is to just get it away from, from other things, um, from other pop, pop culture. Um, and I think that still the best scene that encapsulates that for me was definitely, you know, some of the, the scenes from space with the, uh, Guild Highliner. I mean, I can't think of anything on that same scale in sci-fi. Um, and then that, that's really not it, right? I think that, Well, it's worth worth talking about the desert too, you know, because I think this was definitely aided a lot by filming on location. You know, I know Denis was speaking really highly about the fact that, you know, they filmed everything on location. So it didn't look, you know, they filmed it on Arrakis. Can you believe it? Yeah. They filmed it on Arrakis. Can you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I just, it felt so massive. You know, it felt like what it should to me, which is this just uh, endless landscape of harsh harsh you know dangerous things trying to kill you all the time um you know no no water it just it felt harsh in general um
0: yeah oppressive and and, yeah
1: it that that was perfect i mean um i think you felt the desert almost as a character you know right It, it felt like a character um and maybe that's one of the things that i think scott was talking about too um you know about just how The sheer world building of it all felt like part of the story, you know, because I think in part that's due to the fact that the environments felt like characters themselves. Um, I think that was very impressive.
0: Scott, was the sand enough for you on Arrakis?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's incredibly immersive. And
2: yeah, I do think the desert scenes stand out to me. I mean... I'm going to be hyperbolic, but this is probably the best that a desert has looked since uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I'm not going to lie; I, yeah. I'll be, I'll be hyperbolic. Um but, it was episode
0: four I didn't cut it for
2: you? No, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's incredibly immersive. Like, and again, I am one of those people who are like, we need color in movies. Like, every movie nowadays is just gray. Every black western movie nowadays is just gray. Um, and there is some of that there are there are a few moments where i felt like it was too dark um and i mean it's just unavoidable i think with with a movie like this but ultimately i think there's a good balance i think like i understand the decision to make um everything as dark as it was like to to make the architecture the way that it was like i, I it just it obviously fits the world um i think i have a bigger problem when movies are this color palette for no apparent reason, really. Because
0: they think that it's the right decision.
2: Yeah. Because they think it makes it look more epic or whatever. Yeah. Um, this movie actually is epic. So like it it earns that that, you know, look, I guess. But also the, the um, yeah, contrast I mean,
0: with Caladan as well, I think just provides such a it just casts everything that you see after that you leave Caladan in such stark relief. Yeah.
2: But yeah, I mean the the desert being massive. Y- yes, I mean it's definitely a harsh reality to it and the sandworms obviously we've barely even talked about but um yeah. the big worms spectacular. Um
0: four football fields, chill.
2: Yes. Spectacular. But there's also I think a majesty to the desert particularly yeah. towards the end with you know, the Fremen and like, this is their home, right? They're literally like living underneath the desert. And yeah. so I think we start to see it in a different light once we get introduced to them and we realize, you know, that they're going to be important characters in this whole thing. Yeah. Um, which again, I think goes along with that theme of like, oh, we're othering this environment where these people who we're also othering live. Um, But once we start to see them as people, we also start to see this environment in a new light. So um, that, that really works. Um, Yeah. And in the sound design again, like when they do the voice, like, again, I I've never, it just feels like I've never heard anything like that in a movie before. Like maybe it was just being an IMAX, but like
1: the way that that is, rendered is is very uns like unsettling yeah um that was actually something um as someone who read the book you know and who was who would be thinking about an adaptation of dune it would be one of the first things in my mind to be like oh how do you make this not cheesy you know right because it comes across great in the book but they're completely different mediums and yeah i loved it you know it 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 felt arresting you know in the seats of the theater. And it, it, it really commanding. pins
0: you back to your chair, I feel like. It, the first it, time it really comes out. Oh, yeah.
1: I feel yeah. like Denis was using the voice on me. Like, seriously, <laughs> it was just like throwing me against the back of my seat and just.
0: Come back tomorrow, I'm, watch it again. I'm so
1: surprised. Yeah. I'm so surprised, you know, at how how well it was handled. Um, yeah. It didn't come across, across as cheesy at all. It, um, yeah, it felt very arresting. I think that's maybe my best word for it.
0: Yeah, it's it's so it's it's almost like that whole notion of cheesiness is is not only on Villeneuve's mind, but it's like something he like actively is trying to address in the movie itself. Like at the beginning part where, you know, Lady Jessica tells Paul to like use the voice on her and he's like, I don't want to say half assing it, but like he's not getting the job done. Right. And like there's a few laughs in the theater because it's like kind of it's kind of silly. Like when you see it in that context. But then when, like, you see the real thing, you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, that's, that's terrifying, right? It's completely terrifying. Um, yeah. So it's almost like he's tongue-in-cheek a little bit in retrospect with that first scene when he's showing you what a cheesy version might look like.
1: Yeah. And also, I feel like this is on topic, but at the same time sort of not on topic is yeah. specifically with regard to that scene where, um, you know, Lady Jessica tells Paul to, you know, command her to give, him the, uh, to give her the water. I'm sorry I must have my words but you know what I'm saying um I I think it was great how yeah they added like a little bit of levity there but then I'm gonna go back to Timothy's performance here like the the time where he really tries you know the second attempt there's like just this like this still moment you know where you can see him in his eyes you know just really assessing his mom his mother there Lady Jessica And I feel like it just conveys so much in that performance. Um, And I'm sure it was aided by great cinematography, right? Um, But I I love that moment. Um, Again, you know, it's sort of on topic, sort of not on topic. but Yeah.
0: No, I think that makes sense. But yeah, sonically, I feel like I've said it maybe not so many times on the podcast, but it it really is. It does feel like something that's just no, no other film has really embraced the kind of sound design that this film is embracing to the extent that this film is. I was watching and I told this to Scott after I walked out and I think that this is, applies to sound visuals you know even like the scope and the stunt of, of the stunts happening and the type of stunts that are happening but it really does feel like and this goes back to something Scott was talking about earlier around the the medium of film sort of evolving before your eyes this felt something to be hyperbolic this felt like something like the matrix that is just like redefining and changing the way sci-fi is thought about and portrayed on screen. Um, you know, and that's a movie for me. That is one of my, you know, favorite favorite sci-fi movies ever. I think it completely redefined how people approach sort of like sci-fi action um, and world building today. That I think you still see in, in films today and how they try to build their their worlds and, and build universes. Um, even even to the extent of something like even the superhero franchises of the MCU and DC, I think are are, are taking cues from from The Matrix. And I think that again. The scope is so huge, so I'm not sure that it applies to every type of sci fi movie that might be made. But it wouldn't surprise me if you see a lot of cues from the visuals, the sound, etc., from this film in every sci fi movie for the next you know, 100 years. I've, that might be an eccentric, but 20, 30 years, right? I think they're going to be taking a lot of cues from this. And whether or not this is ultimately viewed as a success by Warner Brothers or not, and they make a sequel, um, I think filmmakers will certainly think of it as the triumph that you're, you described earlier, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm just sort of ticking through my last list of things that that I had on my mind, and we've we've brought it in as it sort of come up, and I think I gave some of my thoughts earlier about the the quality of the adaptation. But Brandon, I did want to talk about it, and I want to get your thoughts maybe before I add some more of my own. But I think that it, if we're being honest, there are a lot of things left out of the film that play a pretty that have a pretty strong presence from themes to characters themselves, um, and so on and so forth. But what did you think about the the quality itself of the adaptation? Were there things, again, I don't want to go into details because I think that there's some chance some of these things get brought, brought back in in part two. So I want to I don't want you to like rattle off a list of things that you wish had been in this that weren't. Um, but yeah, maybe just give me your thoughts specific, more specifically on the ad, the adaptation itself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, this is something I've obviously thought about a lot um, because... I, I loved the movie um, both times I've seen it so far, and you know it—it it feels like a good adaptation. And then I logically think it is. Yeah. Um, it, I, I'm glad I got that. You know, I sort of called it earlier a checklist out of my mind of the things they included and the things they didn't include. But here are the good things, or I shouldn't even say the good things, because overall I thought it was a very good adaptation of the book. I'll yeah. say that you can quote me on that—a very good adaptation um and here's why i yeah like the reasons why i think it's a good adaptation um is because the themes are right and the story is right Um, that is the central story there's obviously some subplots that were left out but um the central story um comes across correctly i think um as it was meant to be and it gets a lot of thematic depth in there if and i think the thematic depth i'll be honest is aided if you know the source material i think that's sort of inevitable yeah um and and i'm sort of hoping that you know like like i think maybe scott you talked about this earlier but um scott um shelton that is you maybe talked about how you know if you really like this maybe it'd be great you know you, you could if you decide to read the book you know if you find that you have the time and the motivation and all that and then when part two comes back around you know you might get an even better experience if you liked part one. Um, but I, I would say that there are certainly things that I would have loved to see. I mean, everyone has those those moments um, for sure that they liked um, or loved rather, and would have loved to see in this adaptation. But I still think as an adaptation, I get very, very high marks. Um, and as you said, there are a few things um, that um, I think they could address in part two. And I, I would say on some level, right, when, when I was thinking about this as an adaptation, most of my big critiques were like, well, I just don't see how they do this without adding 40 minutes to the yeah. movie because it, it kind of has a snowball effect, right? Where if you like include this one little part, you're like, oh, well, you we have to include that part and you have to include that part. And then by that point, you're looking at a four-hour movie that no one's going to see. Um, well, not no one, because I would have been there. <laughs> yeah, um, But, yeah, I, I think it was great as an adaptation. Yeah. Um, not perfect, but great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, like I said, I said at the outset, and I certainly have mentioned it in, in my original Letterboxd review, is that it makes sacrifices to the themes, to the characters, to the stories that are in the book. And all that is in service of just making something that I think is more approachable and more watchable. And that's why I kind of hope. And, and I do believe, whether that is right or wrong, that they will pull some of those subplots and sort of insert them and loop you into some of the things that might have been left out in the first one that are sort of just sitting there in the background a little bit religion and the, and the framing Scott, which you were talking about, which we talked about earlier. And, and, you know, you were mentioning that you really only feel like you have some sort of like cursory notion of, of how those things link together. There's no world in which that isn't a huge part of part two, just because there's, there's, you know the 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 big betrayal has happened, right? There's there's obviously this conflict, but there's no there's no like climactic point where like someone betrays someone else and House Atreides falls anymore. Like that's happened already. Um, so I think there is more of that that I mean, frankly, like more human focus. Yeah. Uh, human Although there's story. questions
2: about Zendaya's character and you know what's gonna happen there based on yeah. the visions that we see in the movie. You
0: know, yeah, you know. I I th- I mean that's another part of the adaptation that I find fascinating and I having read the book have a have a very what I think is a very clear sense of what those visions are showing and I could I feel like I could take anyone aside and explain to them what's happening and feel pretty confident that I was right I wonder how intentional it is that they have left it in like up for a lot of interpretation of what exactly these visions are that that Paul is seeing um, because frankly and i think it's fair to say that the visions that he's seen are not what's happening in reality like every vision that he has is n- none of those things happen in your life like the at the beginning of the film which is actually the first scene in in, in the book with the the box the the pain box this is actually the opening chapter of the book you know lady jessica and the reverend mother are in a, in a conversation that Brandon referenced earlier are talking about how you know, his abilities are like not refined. And he, like he, she even asks him, do the visions or do the dreams you have happen in real life the same way? And he's like, not exactly. Um, and so I think that there is this like really interesting mystery that the film leaves about what the visions are um, that, yeah. that he's having, what they mean, what, how they will um, progress and and develop. Because I think, I think it's pretty clear in the movie that his exposure to spice is intensifying, those visions um but again it's sort of ambiguous what that actually means so i'm actually kind of glad you brought that up because i have a very i think clear sense of what i think it means and from the, from reading the book and i'm sure brandon does as well but it, it sort of it does sort of feel like a mystery if you take sort of background knowledge out and and put it in front of um a newcomer to the, to the franchise
1: yeah you yeah. know on the topic of you know how it is as an, as an adaptation i think naturally you roll around to those things that they omit right? But one thing that I think is great is, you know, too many people focus on these omissions, but what about the additions that we got? Yeah. I mean, because there are a lot of things that are in this movie that are not in the book, but could but feel been. like they fit. Exactly. But yeah, 100%. they could have been, yeah. which I mean, that's that's kind of astounding, right, as a filmmaker to take yeah. this much beloved book and have the fans of this book who've been reading it for, I don't know, I mean, some people have... for. 55 oh, I, years. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and feel like, oh, that could have fit right in. Um, I think we're lucky to have gotten um, an adaptation that has those sort of scenes, you know, where I don't really think anything felt out of place um, in terms of the additions. So I think, yeah, like, I I don't know. I There were some great moments. And I think one of the biggest additions, right, is I think, Scott, um, you mentioned how the first scene in the book is not the first scene we get in the movie. And really the first couple of scenes that we get in the movie are not in the book, but yet it's like the perfect six or seven minute intro to, to this whole world and this whole story. And I think that's really, that's really a huge accomplishment. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I definitely agree with that. I do think before we wrap up, I do want to, Briefly mention a couple other things that we haven't talked about, and that's largely related to the Freeman. We, we mention them off and on here and there. There are a few um, performances that we haven't talked about associated with them. One of those is Javier Bardem playing Stilgar as well as uh, a gender swapped Liet Kyn- Dr. Liette Kynes, who's who's a man in the book, who's played by Sharon Duncan-Brewster. She here. was awesome.
2: I, I can't believe I've forgotten to, to mention her um, yeah. in the Go discussion ahead. of the cast earlier. But talk about just like, again, one of the few actors we in here who we don't know. And yet she comes on screen and she like holds her own like and then some with all of these huge names. Like I thought she was excellent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then um, I I mentioned this only to, to briefly talk about this plot point, which is obviously a big spoiler. But um Doctor Yue, who is the ultimately the person who uh, betrays the Atreides family, He's played by Cheng Chen, and Brandon, you were mentioning something earlier how you are like, I mean, I don't know how people are going to follow this if they don't have an intimate familiarity with the book, and I and I wonder if one of those places that you're talking about is this whole betrayal from Doctor Yue, who there's a, I again just to tell you something about the book, I guess is that. From very early on, you know that this character is going to betray the family. It's made very clear early on for some of the early chapters in the book that he's the person who's going to betray them. But that's not the case in the film. It's barely even touched on at all. It's a passing line. You understand why he betrayed them right before he's killed by the Baron. Um, you talked about the Freeman, but I do want to talk about this sort of plot point because so much of the movie hinges on this um, this moment. But what did what did you think about that Scott? Like, I think I have feelings. I think it's it, it's gone over very quickly, and I think that might. I'm curious if that works for you in the adaptation because I I wonder if Brandon and I may have different opinions about that.
2: Yeah, it probably is one of the more underdeveloped parts of the movie. Just the fact that I mean, it just comes off as like a pretty basic. Oh well, they took my wife and kids, you know, and yeah. um, and you know, and so now I'm going to betray you. But then you know, of course. He gets betrayed and, you know, gets killed anyway, despite the most predictable
0: he... outcome to that situation. Yeah, <laughs>
2: Yeah, it, it does. Fe- it does feel like a predictable. That's kind of what I'm getting at. It does feel like kind of a predictable, you know, sub subplot in a movie where a lot of it is not predictable. Right. Where so much is, you know, it's so fascinating because it also
0: gives you the impression that he knows that that's going to be the outcome, too. But he just feels some compulsion to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I because
2: know. if he doesn't, I mean, yeah, what kind of a person would he be, I guess?
0: Yeah. But, Brandon, yeah, what, what did just, you think uh, about... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: It's not super well-developed. That's all I was going to say.
0: No, it's certainly not well-developed. And I wonder, Brandon, was that one of the, the moments you were, you were thinking about when you thought that it would be hard to follow in the, in the in the film if you didn't have context from the book?
1: Yeah, I think that... I don't know if it was even really that someone would have trouble following it as much as understanding like understand. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I, I feel like they'd be like, oh, okay, well, I guess he just decided to decided to betray Leto because, um, or Leto because, you know, someone had his wife and that's the end of it. Uh, but I think the understanding is sort of, yeah, it's, it's underdeveloped, right? I mean, there's no way. It's one of those points where I was sort of talking about earlier where it's like, yeah, I would have loved if that had been developed. But then you're looking at, I don't know. You are looking at like another 30 ad. extra <laughs> minutes of yeah. just like that whole thing. Yeah. Um. So I think it's one of those things that like, I can't, if, if we're holding the runtime the same, I can't really hold against it too much. I think it did it given the runtime in a smart way, um, that such that it addressed like, oh yeah, like my wife is kidnapped by the Harkonnens. Um, but it didn't feel the need to add any sort of extra depth that might've left more questions than answers. You know, it wasn't willing to spend the time, um,
0: in that. Yeah. And back to the frame, and finally here, um, Scott mentioned that he was a huge fan of of Sharon Duncan-Brewster's performance. But there is also Zendaya who plays narrator <laughs> for like <laughs> a chunk of the movie, um, which is so interesting. I find that I find that choice for her to sort of narrate a lot of scenes, and it goes back to Brandon scenes you were describing as they don't exist in the book, and they're and they're used pretty functionally to help explain the world of Arrakis and and the lore of the of the universe um did you did you like this these portrayals of the framing did you like what they did with with, with shawnee's and dea's character with javier bardem with sharon duncan brewster did you like these i think the, this is also the part where you know you mentioned the zedea stuff but i think that am i wrong the scene with stilgar coming to eric and and meeting with lito that, that's not in the book right that's that's different from the book or am i wrong about that
1: uh, you're talking about when Stilgar meets the Duke Leto in Hurricane? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so it's interesting because it, I, I would say yes and no. Okay. Uh, in that it th- there is a, like a confrontation and, and a conversation between them that's actually pretty similar to that, but it happens at a different scene. Mm-hmm, um, okay. You may recall in the movie, and th- this is in the movie, they have the uh, the conference scene, you know, um, if you may recall. Um, it happens basically during that. So they actually took a scene and basically split it in two, uh, which is an interesting choice, but I think it worked really well. Yeah. I like that yeah. scene, yeah. 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 I think it worked really well um, to Villeneuve's favor. Yeah, totally. The movie's favor. I shouldn't speak to the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Um,
0: but yeah, and then the end, the the final moments, which I believe Scott talked about earlier, I thought... It was an interesting point to leave, I, to leave just... on. Yeah, banter to like
2: end with the last line being "This is only the beginning." Oh yeah, he knows what he's doing. That was that
0: was some banter right there. Just wait till you get the three and a half hour part two, guys. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'd be shocked if if, I would have watched.
2: I honestly, I I said to my friend who I went to this movie with, I was like, I would watch the part two right now if they want to roll it right now. That's that's what
0: I I remember. I that was like one of the things that I think I said that I told you. I was like. This film was like two hours and thirty-five minutes long, and I would have watched two hours and thirty-five minutes more maybe, exactly. Maybe right give after. me ten minutes, you know, to just relieve yourself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> then let it roll. Yeah. Uh, any last thoughts, guys, before we wrap things up? We covered everything. I think we said it
1: all. Yeah. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground.
0: All right. Favorite scene or moment from this epic? Um, we sprung this on Brandon a little bit right before. So Scott, I'm going to go to you first.
2: It's a hard choice I do think that the the action scene where um, he they are trying to rescue the people from the, the, the mm. that's the moment where I talk about like the yeah. the sand vibrating and then you know obviously the sandworm gets involved there and it's just again it just feels like, yeah. like all, awe-inspiring like for a moment to moment like you you really don't know what you are about to see and hear next Whatever. Um and That's kind of the moment in the movie where it clicked in for me like, okay, we're watching something like pretty visionary right now. Yeah.
0: Brandon, what about you? Yeah, this is tough. Um, I can go first if you want a little bit more time. I can also go. Yeah, you go first. You go first. I'll think about it for
1: a second.
0: Sheer moment. I think just because this doesn't really happen in the book and it's not clear, at least it was not for me. I'll speak in my own experience only. I did not pick up on this until much later on in the book where it is much more explicit, but the shot like when, which is also different from the book of how Dr. Lee at eventually is killed. Um, is slightly different. It's, it's similar, but, di- but different from the book, but this moment right before she gets cut down by the Sadar car. And when she's like taking out her, like pickaxes and, yeah, and, and like watching them, I was like, Oh man. And they, and then they show you later what she's, what she was going to do. Um, even though they imply in that moment, I'm like, oh my god, I cannot believe they're doing this. This is amazing. It's just that that was spine tingling stuff.
1: Okay, I will I will attempt. Here. Okay. I think
0: you cannot say the whole movie. Sorry, I know,
1: that's the thing. You just want to say the whole movie. Um can I choose two because I'll, I'll yeah. say one yeah, yeah, thematic, yeah, I'll give okay, yeah, a thematic yeah. favorite scene. So, themes-wise, something that really felt like it connected with me with the story and made me feel like, "Oh, I'm just having this great experience as a fan of this already." Was the scene where they're in the the still tent, uh, the, the tent, you know. Um and and Paul is having those very confusing visions. Um and he and his mom have has tension there, uh, Lady Jessica I, I love that moment from a thematic standpoint. Um, I I I It's funny, too, because I say that, and I, I almost feel like, I, I think they could have done a little bit better, but I still loved it so much. Yeah. And then... It's this great
0: feeling of, like, overwhelmed child yeah. and mother. And yeah. then, like, this, like, immediate, like, snap of, all right, I have to pull myself
1: together and be more than, yeah. than this,
0: like, overwhelmed, you know, teenager.
1: Right. So I'll say that's my favorite thematic scene. And then I'll say... The next thing is just a really tiny thing um, scene wise, but it's during the Harkonnen invasion of Arrakis. Mm. And you see just all this chaos around and you see these palm trees just completely engulfed in flames as soldiers are marching by. And I swear that was as good as I could have ever imagined that. From from reading the book. That because I, I loved that bit in the book with the palm trees on fire. Yeah. And I I could not have ever in my wildest, wildest dreams imagined that better. And, and that one single moment, it was like five seconds, you know, but it was amazing. Totally. And the explosion, the explosion
2: too, like looks better than explosions and movies that cost a lot more. So the
1: shield
0: explosions are are quality. Yeah. yeah. Also, there's just something really eerie about like right the Siddhartha car like slowly floating down. Yeah. From the ships. Um, which is not how I picture that happening from the book, but was really effective. It was in the trailer. I mean, look, the sandworm also guys, the sandworms we have not talked about at all. Incredible. They showed everything that you'll see with the sandworm in the freaking trailers. So you're not gonna get anything wow. in addition to that, which I always find frustrating when they
2: do. Well, I like yeah, it's still a lot different when you see it on the big screen,
0: but sure. For for sure, yeah. And I think the but what I find so interesting about that is like when you're talking about those scenes, you're talking about like how the like the Earth moves around it, right? Like, I feel like if you go into this movie, you're like, I'm gonna see some gigantic sandworms, like. But the fact that you you know you kind of seen the sandworms already, and then what you then appreciate about afterwards is sort of like the contextual effect of the like Terrence Malick, yeah, yeah, esque
2: yeah, yeah, elements of it. Sure, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that you already sort of spoke onto this um, or on this subject, but the sandworms were awesome. I loved it i loved that uh interpretation of uh i guess you could say character right in a certain sense yeah but I mean, start, the thing i feel like future. i loved yeah the thing i loved most i feel like strangely was just the interactions with of the worm with the sand like just these like explosions of sand and like yeah. the sand looks like it's dropping and it's vibrating and it's caving
0: in it reminds you there's no there's no ground underneath what Um, I'm that sand. It's just Just all sand. Just like
1: these gigantic waves of sand uh, are crashing at parts. I thought that was it was stunning, really visually.
0: Preach! All right, guys. Out of ten, Scott, what are you giving Denny Villeneuve's Dune?
2: Um, It's not a perfect experience, but um, I enjoyed it way more than I ever thought that i would and again it speaks to the visionary quality of the filmmaking that even though it has a lot of things that typically are turnoffs for me in movies i was still swept away so it's a
0: 9.3 it's a it's an absolutely fantastic movie yeah and an overwhelming 9.3 it punches above its weight probably because of just the spectacle and some of the things you're talking about earlier um for me i'm you know as much as my heart just wants to give this a 10 i think I do recognize that there's there are some imperfections in spi- and though I have not mentioned any of them on this podcast. Um, I'm giving it a 9.8. It's it it's like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse level. I remember this is like the only time I've got a movie that close to a 10, but not. There's like a couple things that just hold me back. Um, but it's like a 9.8 that's like a, a 15 in my heart. I don't know. It's, it's really, really lovely. Brandon, what about you?
1: It's hard for me to have one score on this. Um, it's tough. I feel like... Yeah, on a level of it being a movie i honestly i'll just I'll i know you scott i feel like yeah 9.8 that sounds great like there's just so there's just a couple minor things right yeah. that just as a, as a movie you know i think hold this back from a 10. um but as an adaptation, i'm sorry adaptation um yeah i'll give it like a nine which is still very high considering the amount of stuff left out um has
0: there ever been a 10 adaptation of a book it's little, uh, you know, little women the one yeah
2: probably and to kill a mockingbird those would be the two i think yeah yeah
1: well it's tough regardless right um yeah. i it's I think really I hard just, I, if i had to give it one score right i'll say like a 9.5 or something you know out of 10
0: sure go watch Dune, everyone truly a spectacle i've seen it twice brandon's seen it twice scott's seen it once i don't think scott's gonna see it again but i know i'm gonna see it one, yeah,
2: two. I, I just have you know, I'm seeing like seven movies next week. Yeah, you do
0: it. You're in this enviable, but maybe unenviable position of of having very limited movie going time right now, um, yeah. just because you have locked yourself into this uh, really cool experience of going to a film festival, which I'm really excited for you about. Um, but does limit your ability to go back on the daily and watch Dune next like... week at least. Yeah. yeah, true, true. I mean, Dune's still going to be there, but Eternals is going to take over the IMAX screens and. Scott just gags on screen, which is understandable. Maybe I don't know. I, we're all just watching movies with infinite budget, so yeah, with right. eternal budget. Touche. I think we just need to end at that point. Uh, all right, that should about do it for our discussion of Dune. Thank you, Brandon, so much uh, for coming on the podcast, talking about Dune with us. We hope to have you back in two or three years, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, probably three yeah, years. yeah, I don't know. Um, uh yeah
1: let's let's hope it's let's hope it's soon right um thank you guys for for having me and i hope that i didn't incidentally spoil anything i'm like thinking back now like no not I, don't really. I, so. I don't even think we um, came close yeah okay good yeah. good that is that was partially my goal right <laughs> um totally. thanks for having me on i'll Absolutely. see you in a couple of years i guess
0: <laughs> well you're welcome back on anytime you want. there's a particular movie you want to talk about um i think that your perspective is is different than ours and you know we're we're in this mindset of like you know we watch one or two new movies every week Scott watches more of you know older movies as well and um having someone come in with a bit fresher eyes than someone who just came off ripping seven movies in the last seven days is is helpful sometimes and pulls us out of the out of the tree so that we can see the forest maybe. Um, So I think that's something that I appreciate and excited to have you back on in the future. And you know if not before Dune Part 2, hopefully when uh, Dune Part 2 comes out, uh, it is performing well at the box office relative to expectations. Yeah. Seems like the yeah. Warner Brothers executives are amenable to giving Denis Villeneuve 200 million more dollars to set on fire in the UAE. And hopefully we'll we'll get the movie that I feel like we deserve.
1: Um, yeah, I we'll have see. good suspicions.
0: And with that, I think that should just about do it for episode 162 of Some Like It, Scott guys any parting thoughts to leave us with today scott maybe you in particular if anything's on your mind university of tennessee mock trial related i don't know no literally nothing
2: literally nothing on my mind certainly about the not about the things that you mentioned nothing that i wish to express at least so um, nothing
0: nothing that you're legally allowed to talk about
2: (laughs) nothing that i just want to talk about but uh no uh yeah, I mean, go see Dune. I'm looking forward. You mentioned it there. I'm looking forward uh, to the film festival. I'm going to the Virginia Film Festival
0: next weekend.
2: We'll be seeing six movies, um, including a lot of the ones you saw at um, yeah New York Film Fest, Scott. And so. some I
0: didn't. You're seeing Spencer, yeah. Spencer right?
2: So. Spencer. Yep. Yeah. I look forward to uh, to being able to add to the conversation on those that you know you um, had some discussion of a couple weeks ago.
0: And you, you are Not seeing the, the Power of the Dog, or I forget where you came from. Not You're The Power of the Dog. The Lost no, Daughter. I'm
2: Red Rocket instead. I am seeing The Lost Daughter. Gotcha. Yeah, no. Also, Mass, which you saw at Sundance, Flea, which you saw at Sundance, yeah. um, and uh, Come On, Come On, which you saw at uh, New York Film Fest as well, the Mike Mills film.
0: Yeah. Uh, prepare yourself for Dakota Johnson in a bathing suit for half of The Lost Daughter. So I'm always prepared for that. God, I don't know what that means, but okay. Uh, where can people uh, find you on social if you care to share that thing, Scott? Uh,
2: at Scarby Dent on uh, Twitter and Letterbox. That's where you can follow me,
0: Brandon. Any any socials to pimp for you?
1: Um, you know you can. I have a private Instagram, but you know you can always you can you always be try. You can send that re- request.
0: Honest Peach
1: Ice Tea or whatever. Yeah, uh, Honest Tea Peach Ice Tea, I believe. Or yeah, yeah. yeah. I think mean,
0: that's it. Yeah, I mean, look, I I. It doesn't happen that that often, but when you go off on some on some food related Instagram stories, I always really enjoy them. I will I will say,
1: yeah. Well, I'm here to serve.
0: You, know. <laughs> you honestly, you do inspire me on in some of those. I, I cook more now these days than than uh, when I worked in my last job. So it does provide yeah. some Inspiration.
1: We uh we've been cooking less because we got a dog um, <laughs> a couple months ago. So but it's it's starting to get a little easier. So back into cooking, but.
0: Yeah, I mean, I understand that is, uh, is a lot of effort and work. But uh, yeah, I can be found at Ashelton2013 on Twitter, on Letterboxd. I think I'm at Ashelton2017 on Instagram, but I don't do anything on Instagram. There's no reason to follow me there. Just follow me on Letterboxd. You can also uh, follow our, our podcast at Patreon, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check us out over there. bunch of reward tiers. If you can support us, that'd be great. If not, that's okay, too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, everywhere you get your podcasts. If not, let us know and we will figure out why we are not there. We'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe, share, all that jazz so we continue to reach a broader audience. And we will be back next week with a review of Last Night in Soho, the new Edgar Wright movie starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Thomasine McKenzie should be a really interesting one as he dips his toe into the psychological thriller genre. And then we're obviously going to be having a recap of Scott as well. Um, coming out of the Virginia Film Festival, as he just mentioned. In the meantime, though, we are also going to have a Halloween special. We'll be talking about Halloween Kills that will be dropping on Halloween. You can watch that movie on Peacock. Uh, disclosure, I do work for Peacock, so if you did watch, that would be great. But if not, I understand. Um, but until then, for Scott Harvey and Brandon Bout, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Let the spice flow. This is only the beginning. Thank